0: The Hamlet Podcast, Episode Sixty Nine. Hello, and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Conor Henrity. After this massive scene of courtly life in Elsinore, with kings and spies, friends and foes, actors and performers, all vying for information and attention on the stage, Hamlet finally gets a moment of peace. As he said at the end of the last episode, now I am alone. The soliloquy that follows draws together the entire scene that has gone before, and all the theatre of it, all the performative references, all the acting, starts to make sense. This soliloquy will take us through the next few episodes, and as ever, we'll take our time with it. Whenever Hamlet speaks to us alone, there's a lot going on. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to this conceit, and all for nothing, for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her? What would he do, had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? would drown the stage with tears, and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appal the free, confound the ignorant, and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. One of the great keys to unlocking Shakespeare is understanding his use of antithesis, and this is the juxtaposition of two opposites. Almost all of his famous speeches and ideas feature some element of this. Indeed, in the next big soliloquy we encounter perhaps the most simple and most famous example of Antithesis in all of his plays, to be or not to be. Whether it's day and night or black and white or whatever your own favourite example may be, it is never hard to find an example of Antithesis, the setting up of two opposites within Shakespeare's writing. This speech begins with something of a sideways approach towards it. We have Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, calling himself a rogue and a peasant slave. This juxtaposition is intense. Hamlet is feeling utterly worthless, regardless of his royal birth and his position at court. And don't forget Claudius' creepy comment calling him our chiefest courtier, cousin and our son. The player's speech has knocked Hamlet for six and he feels like a scoundrel with no power or worth. A rogue and peasant slave, indeed. And why is he feeling like this? we get a good long explanation as Hamlet vents about how this actor, delivering a speech about a mythological situation, can access real emotion to the extent that he is physically affected by the story he is telling. He says, Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit? Hamlet is as impressed with the actor as he is disappointed at his own situation. I love that he doesn't just call it a play or a poem. It's a fiction, a dream of passion. And indeed, this last is another phrase from the play that was co-opted as the title of a new artwork. It's the English-language title of a Jules Dessin film starring Melina Mercury. As Hamlet sees it, the actor can force his soul to his own conceit, or channel his very soul into expressing what he's feeling, to the extent, he continues, that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to this conceit, and all for nothing, for Hecuba. As Hamlet says, the actor's face went pale, his visage waned, there were tears in his eyes, distraction or distress in his aspect, or again his face, there's a crack in his voice and his whole physical demeanour matching the horror of the story he was telling. And all of this passion for what? For nothing. For Hecuba, a mythological Trojan queen. We now have one of the most famous and misquoted lines in the play, as Hamlet wonders why on earth this actor can access so much emotion for this random imagined woman. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her? What would he do, had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? The second question here is the real kicker. What would he do, had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? If you'll forgive the overused quotation, that is the question. But Hamlet already has an answer. He would drown the stage with tears, and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant, and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. I love the extravagance that Shakespeare allows Hamlet here. We've had the player's speech without any frills. He's performed it, surrounded by his troop and their luggage, in the lobby of the castle, with no bells and no whistles. Hamlet's imagination overflows, and he suggests that, faced with his plight, the same actor would drown his stage with tears. He'd cleave or drive at every listening ear with a speech that would horrify them. We have another antithesis here between the guilty and the free or innocent. Hamlet's situation would arouse differing if equally passionate responses in them both. The player's version of events would utterly shock and confound the ignorant, who were unaware of the rotten things in the state of Denmark, and amaze indeed the faculties of their eyes and ears. Hamlet is really getting excited at how impressive the player's response to his current circumstances might be, precisely because he's going to juxtapose his own actions and responses. For all that the player can present and arouse great passion for figures as distant and imaginary as poor old Hecuba, Hamlet is tormented by his inability to get everyone as moved and as affected by the real events that have happened in this very building. Given the excitement and passion evoked by the first player's performance, a seed is germinating here, and it will have sprouted by the end of the soliloquy, that perhaps it's through the power of performance that Hamlet might set in motion the revenge he promised his father. We've already seen him ask the first player if, perhaps, he could add a few lines to the play they've agreed to perform. The soliloquy is his way of setting all of this up, of explaining his feelings, working them out, and seeing his emerging plan of action. Of course, there's a good deal more of this soliloquy to come, and we'll pick up with it in the next episode. In the meantime, be sure to check out the website, thehamletpodcast.com, for the show notes and full text that accompany this and every episode, as well as an ever-growing archive of bonus episodes and many other features besides. Since this episode is named for that most famous of Trojan women, I want to mention a terrific read for anyone interested in the history of Irish theatre or of actors and their craft. It's called All for Hecuba, and it's the autobiography of Mihol MacLehomor, one of the great theatrical characters of Dublin in the 20th century. Since he named his memoir after this week's portion of the play, It's only appropriate that I mention it in this episode. It's a tremendous read if you can get your hands on a copy. Happy hunting, and I'll speak to you next time.